St. Teresa of Avila, Feminine Role Model for the Ages. In 16th century, Spanish Christian mystic Santa Teresa de Jesus, better known as Teresa of Avila, was a great and timeless figure in the history of mysticism. Her life exhibited a universal ideal for women and men of all ages, that of giving one's entire life to the ultimate truth called God in the Christian tradition, in a spirit of total and complete love and devotion. This ideal is, of course, nothing new, for lovers of God of every era and in all religious traditions have aspired to it. Yet her surrenderance was particularly remarkable and noteworthy. Teresa was born on March 28, 1515, in Avila, Spain. Her parents were good and devout people, fostering Teresa's yearnings for God at an early age. Teresa, however, also indulged at an early age in the typical sins of the young at that time in Avila. As she put it, the malicious pleasure of gossip, the vanities of dress, coiffure, and perfume, the idle escapism of chivalric books. But with the death of her mother at the age of 14, Teresa turned her heart completely to spiritual matters. She entered an Augustinian convent at the age of 16 and became a novice in the Carmelite convent of the Incarnation at the age of 21. It was shortly after this, even at such an early age, that Teresa began to experience the stages of mystic prayer, which we will speak more about later. However, for her to attain to the highest reaches of prayer, greater and greater purification was needed. Thus, Teresa, for a period of over 20 years and continuing on and off throughout her, her life, had to go through an intense period of physical and spiritual suffering. For example, after a particularly rough experience in which most people practically gave her up for dead, Teresa says, After this fit, which lasted for four days, I was in such a state that only the Lord can know what intolerable sufferings I experienced. My tongue was bitten to pieces, nothing had passed my lips, and because of this, and of my great weakness, my throat was choking me so that I could not even take water. All my bones seemed to be out of joint, and there was a terrible confusion in my head. As a result of these torments I had suffered during these days, I was all doubled up like a ball, and no more able to move arm, foot, hand, or head than if I had been dead. And yet even through experiences such as these, Teresa could retain an attitude of forbearance and loving patience which never failed to amaze those around her. Instead of dwelling on her distress, she would ponder on yet still greater ways of pleasing her master, Jesus Christ, and growing closer to him. As she put it, 
I made my confession very frequently and talked a great deal about God in such a way that all were edified and astonished at the patience which the Lord gave me. For had it not come from His Majesty's hand, it would have seemed impossible to be able to endure such great sufferings with such great joy. My great yearning, I think, was to get well so that I might be alone when I prayed, as I had been taught to before there was no possibility of this in the infirmary. I beg him for the love of God to excuse none of my faults, for they only reveal the magnificence of God and his long-suffering to the soul. May he be blessed forever, and may it please his majesty that I be utterly consumed rather than cease to love him. Thus we can see here a moving ideal of love, that which only seeks to give and give still more through even the greatest trials, seeking only the will of the Beloved. But never satisfied with her love for God and ever conscious of the slightest imperfection, Teresa longed to wipe away the familiar attachments to the world which seemed to be the common lot of all mankind. She stated, On the one hand God was calling me, on the other I was following the world. All the things of God that he gave me great pleasure, yet I was tied and bound to those of the world. The pleasures and joys and pastimes of the senses. His sovereign bounty regarded not the great sins, but the desires which I so often had to serve him, and my grief at not having in myself the strength to turn the desires into actions. The spiritual suffering which resulted from this seeming inability to turn completely from the life of sense was sometimes even more intense, if that be possible, than the physical tortures she bore. For although her spiritual consolations were at times great, in general she went through during this period a great inner conflict. As she put it, I can testify that this is one of the most grievous kinds of life which I think can be imagined. For I had neither any joy in God nor any pleasure in the world. When I was in the midst of worldly pleasures, I was distressed by the remembrance of what I owed to God. When I was with God, I grew restless because of worldly affections. This is so grievous a conflict that I don't know how I managed to endure it for a month, much less for so many years. Here we see one of the more attractive qualities of this saint, her accessibility to the human condition. That is, despite the tremendous heights which she reached in her inner life, she was still subject to all the desires, vanities, and pleasures of the world, exhibiting a familiar pattern of great temptation, falling and rising again with the faith that ultimately the spirit would conquer the flesh and the mind. Ultimately, the spirit did win out. Her ideal life of forbearance and faith, despite the greatest suffering and temptation, eventually led her to a profound love for God and surrenderance to His will. Speaking of the soul, Teresa says, No longer does he fear perils, rather he desires them, 
for through them, as it were, he receives the assurance of victory. This becomes very evident in the little weight now given by the soul to earthly matters, which it treats as the worthless things that they are. He who is raised on high attains many things. The soul has no desire to seek or possess any free will, even if it so wished. And it is for this that it prays to the Lord, giving him the keys of its will. But how did Teresa soar to these great heights of complete surrenderance to God? For this we turn to her method of mental prayer or meditation. From her beginnings in prayerful devotion as a novice in the Carmelite order to the final states of ecstasy experienced when a mature religious, Teresa traversed a path of prayer which proved to be both practical and effective. As opposed to certain types of meditation such as Zen Buddhism or various types of yoga, Teresa's meditation provides a natural, easy, and spontaneous approach to spiritual awareness. That is, particularly for the average Westerner, her meditation techniques call for no special postures, no dry formula or rigorous discipline. Rather, she provides a broad format through which the heart can work as well as the mind. Teresa's approach deals with deep feeling as well as mental control, with warmth as well as aloofness, with love as well as transcendence. St. Teresa's method of meditation involves four clearly defined stages. They are active prayer, partially passive prayer, completely passive prayer, and ecstatic union. She compares these four stages to four means of watering a garden. The garden is the individual soul, and for the Lord to take his delight in this garden, we, the gardeners, must tend to it and seek out ways to nurture it. In her own words, let us now consider how this garden can be watered, so that we may know what we have to do, what labor it will cost us, if the gain will outweigh the labor, and for how long this labor must be borne. It seems to me that the garden can be watered in four ways, by taking the water from a well, which costs us great labor, or by a water wheel and buckets, when the water is drawn by a windlass, or by a stream or a brook, which waters the ground much better, so that the gardener's labor is much less or by heavy rain, when the Lord waters it with no labor of ours, a way incomparably better than any of those that have been described. The first means of watering our garden, that of taking water from a well, or active, sometimes called discursive prayer, is a focusing of the mind on Christ, or on his life or works. In its beginning stage, the mind is as active as it normally is throughout the day, except here, it is focused on, for example, a special scene from the life of Christ which particularly touches the heart of the person meditating, thereby enabling the mind to focus easier. As St. Teresa illustrates, We begin to meditate upon a scene at the Passion, 
let us say, upon the binding of the Lord to the column. The mind sets to work to seek out the reasons which are to be found for the great afflictions and distress which His Majesty must have suffered when He was alone there. It also meditates on the many other lessons which, if it is industrious or well stored with learning, this mystery can teach. It is well to reflect for a time and to think of the pains which he bore there, why he bore them, who he is that bore them, and with what great love he suffered them. Thus, a person, through his good thoughts, deliberately takes water from a well, thereby watering or cleansing and improving the condition of his garden. In the later stages of this type of prayer, however, the mind gradually slows down, and having stirred up his heart, the person begins a conversation with Christ. She says that, we must not always tire ourselves by going in search of such ideas. We must sometimes remain by his side with our minds hushed in silence. If we can, we should occupy ourselves in looking upon him who is looking at us. Keep him company, talk with him, pray to him, humble ourselves before him, have our delight in him, and remember that he never deserved to be there. We here encounter a most important and noteworthy element in Teresa's meditation, that of the intimacy of Christ within us. The soul must foster the belief given to Christians that the kingdom of heaven is within, and that, as is often stated by the masters, God is nearer to us than our breath. Teresa herself asked, Do you suppose it is of little importance that a soul which is often distracted should come to find that in order to speak to its eternal Father and to take its delight in Him, it has no need to go to heaven or to speak in a loud voice? However quietly we speak, He is so near that He will hear us. We need no wings to go in search of Him, but have only to find a place where we can be alone and look upon Him present within us. With the going realization of the friendly presence of Christ within us and of our loving intimacy with Him, the soul readies itself for watering by water wheel and buckets, or partially passive prayer. In this second stage of Theresean prayer, often called the prayer of quiet or the prayer of recollection, the mind is less aggressive and deliberate. Rather, a pure love begins to be bestowed on the garden of the soul, thereby watering it with grace that, through one's loving attention and concentration on Christ, is only partially induced by the action of the soul. Thus, although the mind seeks to focus on Christ, the soul is passive enough to let it be touched by Christ in a very special manner. 
Teresa said, This prayer, then, is a little spark of true love for the Lord, which he begins to enkindle in the soul. And his will is that it should come to understand the nature of this love with this attendant joy. This quiet and recollection, this little spark, is not a thing that can be acquired, as anyone who has experience of it must perforce realize immediately. Thus the supernatural element enters here, one which induces a greater joy upon the soul, and which causes the water to be drawn with less effort. In Teresa's own words, This state in which the soul begins to recollect itself borders on the supernatural. True, it sometimes seems to have been wearied by its work at the windlass, its laboring with the understanding, and its filling of the buckets. But in this state, the water is higher, and thus much less labor is required than for the drawing of it from the well. I mean that the water is nearer to it, for grace reveals itself to the soul more clearly. For this, the soul moves on to the third stage, the state of completely passive prayer. This state, sometimes termed the prayer of union, is a natural outgrowth of the second stage. Here, the mind is, as it were, attaining a complete passivity. No longer does the mind exert its own power to water its garden. Rather, by only a slight directing of the will to the master, the soul lets the Lord become the gardener. Teresa explains, Let us now go on and speak of the third water with which this garden is watered. This irrigates the garden with much less trouble, although a certain amount is caused by the directing of it. But the Lord is now pleased to help the gardener, so that he may almost be said to be the gardener himself. For it is he who does everything. This state is a sleep of the faculties, which are neither wholly lost nor yet can understand how they work. The pleasure and sweetness and delight are incomparably greater than in the previous state, for the water of grace rises to the very neck of the soul. This stage would appear to be one of great impracticality. With the soul in such a state of passivity, how can it function? Is it not in a state of blissful helplessness, able only to commune with its master? Teresa answers with the following statement. When the will is in union, the soul realizes that the will is captive and rejoicing, and that it alone is experiencing great quiet, while, on the other hand, the understanding and the memory are so free that they can attend to business and do works of charity. Thus, although the faculties sleep, it is only with regard to the operation of watering the garden that it is so. The senses and mind can be about their work, while the motivating power behind them, the will, is feeling the love of Christ due to its intimate communion with Him. And 
And so here we have one of the truly noteworthy, ideal qualities of Teresa's path of mental prayer. With this method, God can grant to the soul the state of being in the world, but not of it. The real lover of Christ, who is a person of prayer, does not attend to worldly duties, activities, and acts of service, a particularly Christian ideal, with all the typical desires, longings, and emotional problems of the average man. Instead, from the eternal stream of love poured out by Christ himself, the soul is motivated by love, acts in love, and exists in love. With the fulfillment of this extremely noble ideal, the mind gradually becomes purified of its worldly desires through meditation on Christ and through a growth in divine love. The actions and thoughts then become purified and one truly becomes a light in the world. This is the height of practicality. Instead of blissful forgetfulness of the world and its duties, the soul welcomes the opportunity to live in the world and serve God. Nothing is too much to ask for one so touched and so deeply touched by the love of God. As Teresa put it, these desires are supernatural and come from souls fired with love who would like the Lord to see that they are not serving Him for pay. For which reason, as I have said, they never spur themselves to greater efforts in God's service by thinking of the glory which they will receive from anything they do. Rather, do they serve Him for the satisfaction of their love. For the nature of love invariably finds expression in work of a thousand kinds. If it were able, the soul would invent methods by which it could become consumed in him, and if, for the greater honor of God, it were necessary that it should remain annihilated forever, it would agree to this very willingly. yet further spiritual growth, the soul enters into the fourth stage, the ecstatic union or rapture. Actually, this is again only a highly evolved state of the previous stage of prayer. The love becomes so intense that the soul longs only for total, complete union with God. Thus, at times, and only for short periods of time, the soul is given the experience of this ecstatic union with her beloved. It often comes unexpectedly, and it is as if the soul soars upward to meet Christ in absorption, leaving the body practically lifeless. Teresa states that, In these raptures the soul seems no longer to animate the body, and thus the natural heat of the body is felt to be very sensibly diminished. It gradually becomes colder, though conscious of the greatest sweetness and delight. No means of resistance is possible. Often it comes like a strong, swift impulse before your thought can forewarn you of it or you can do anything to help yourself. You see and feel this cloud or this powerful eagle rising and bearing you up with it on its wings. In these states of rapture, the body and understanding certainly fail to function normally. The soul is conscious only of the reign of grace upon it, and of the greatest bliss of union. As she described it, 
the soul becomes conscious that it is fainting almost completely away in a kind of swoon with an exceeding great and sweet delight. It gradually ceases to breathe, and all its bodily strength begins to fail it. It cannot even move its hands without great pain. Its eyes involuntarily close, or, if they remain open, they can hardly see. If a person in this state attempts to read, he is unable to spell out a single letter. It is as much as he can do to recognize one at all. He seems that letters are there, but as the understanding gives him no help, he cannot read them even if it so wishes. He can apprehend nothing with the senses, which only hinder his soul's joy, and thus harm rather than help him. In this condition, all outward strength vanishes, while the strength of the soul increases, so that it may the better have fruition of its bliss. But we are still not through. Teresa, in her later years, experienced a yet higher state of consciousness, which actually permitted her to feel the traces of this ecstasy in her everyday duties and affairs, thereby again bringing into play the practical aspect of her mystic path. She was able to, in a sense, see God in everyone and everything, and to experience the living presence of Christ in her soul at all times. She states that the presence is not, of course, always recognized so fully, I mean so clearly, as it is when it first comes. If it were, it would be impossible for the soul to think of anything else, or even to live among men. But although the light which accompanies it may not be so clear, the soul is always aware that it is experiencing this companionship. However numerous were her trials and business worries, the essential part of her soul seemed never to move from that dwelling place. He has been pleased to unite himself with his creature in such a way that they have become like two who cannot be separated from one another. For Teresa, after this, the only step left would be that eternal union with Christ, the heights of which, according to prevailing Christian thought, could only be attained after death. With the completion of her stages of meditation, Teresa had now attained to that ideal which she had, through her path of prayer, always strived for, an all-consuming humility which resulted in complete surrenderance to God, so that it was no longer she who lived, but Christ in her. This humility forms what is perhaps the most important teaching of Teresa and another one of her noteworthy, timeless qualities. For it is only with humility or the awareness that the finite self or ego is false and nothing in itself and that only God is real and true, that the soul can begin to grow towards a total union with God. With a gradual surrenderance of the finite self through humility, the soul is able to traverse the path of prayer and joyously fulfill a life of love and service to the Master. And whether their Master be Jesus, 
Krishna, Lord Buddha, or whoever the traditional spiritual ideal may be, the selfless humility, love, and devotion which Teresa lived remains ever the ideal for all lovers of God. Speaking of the soul as a castle made of a single diamond, Teresa utters her timeless message. Do you know when people really become spiritual? It is when they become the slaves of God and are branded with His sign, which is the sign of the cross, in token that they have given Him their freedom. Then He can sell them as slaves to the whole world, as He Himself was sold. And if He does this, He will be doing them no wrong, but showing them no slight favor. Unless they resolve to do this, they need not expect to make great progress. For the foundation of this whole edifice, as I have said, is humility. And if you have not true humility, the Lord will not wish it to reach any great height. In fact, it is for your own good that it should not, for if it did, it would fall to the ground. Therefore, sisters, if you wish to lay good foundations, each of you must try to be the least of all and the slave of God and must seek a way and means to please and serve all your companions. If you do that, it will be of more value to you than to them and your foundation will be set so firmly that your castle will not fall.